the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you on a fine Wednesday morning from the capital of Germany where the record-breaking 32 Grammy Award winner Beyonce has caused a scandal this week by announcing a world tour with dates in Frankfurt, Cologne and Hamburg but not Berlin, prompting the Berliner Zeitung to shriek, Beyonce swerves Berlin. My name is Daniel Freiber, I am the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will not swerve cyclocross and the World Championships at the weekend or indeed the racing that's taken place on the road in recent days, and we will find out why the great nation of Belgium may soon be crazy in love with a rider who was very much who was very much in the thick of the action and burnishing his halo at the weekend. Joining me to do all of that, doing so from a place very close to my heart after my storied trip there a few weeks ago, i.e. the Grenken Velodrome in Switzerland. It's a man who may be Belgium's answer to Beyonce, so beloved is his voice there. He's also the only individual guaranteed to beat Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel to every finish line. Last time he appeared on the podcast, he revealed Remco Evenepoel's penchant for a self-help book. Hence, this time we'll wait with bated breath for full disclosure about Van Aert's love of Renaissance novellas or MVDP's fondness for a celebrity cookbook. He's already been to Argentina this year. As I hinted, he's now poised to cover the European Track Championships. He's a veteran of 24 Tours de France, 22 Giri d'Italia, 4 Vueltas a España. He is the wheeler man and his name is Renat Schotter. Renard, you've disappointed me already this morning by telling me you weren't at the Cyclocross Worlds at the weekend, which is which is shocking. Daniel, I'm I'm a bit blown away by your intro there. <laughs> as as we start the broadcast, they pump up the volume at the at the cycling track here in in Grenchen. So I was I was kind of jet lagged uh, from the Argentina trip. I, I covered San Juan. I'm already in Grenchen now on on the track for. Uh, European Championships upcoming. If you hear strange noises in the background, those are the riders having the final training session just before these uh, track Euros. I can tell you that that uh, Ghana is here riding in front of my eyes. Elia Viviani I've spotted on the track. Uh, Lotto Kopecki is walking around in a rainbow jersey. This is really cycling heaven for a, a journalist. And um, yeah, I, I missed Hogerheide, but I, I didn't miss it. On the other hand, because of course I was watching it on, on, on television and I was, um, I was astonished right after the race, like a lot of people I think, about not the outcome. I, you could suspect Mathieu van der Poel to be a winner in front of his home crowd, but the way he did it was like magic. I mean, he took a scenario, he chose a scenario completely different than everybody expected before. Well, Renat, don't use up all of your best material yet. And also, you've already inflamed one of my allergies by talking about track cycling. Um, it's uh, uh, <laughs> We're going to talk about cyclocross later in, in great detail with our second guest. Also joining me today is a man who returned to center stage on the cycling podcast last week and saw it mainly as an invitation to unleash six months of pent-up piss-taking upon yours truly. He'll only get an abridged intro from now on as I daren't bait him with any more fresh meat. He is the uncaged lion of the Chilterns. He doesn't know this, but he's on a yellow card after last week's antics. He is not Watford's Lionel Burney. Lionel, you look you look offended. You look put out already. Hello, Daniel. What's the yellow card for? Just general insurrection. 
Oh, okay. I've been out of the loop for six months, Daniel. But who does Beyonce ride for? Is it SD Works or Canyon SRAM? I'm, 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 I've got a lot of catching up to do. I know that. This will be like me when we start talking about cyclocross later. Um, <laughs> Lionel, how are you? I'm very good. Yes, I very much enjoyed the cyclocross over the weekend. You won't use up all my best lines, but I did like uh, a friend of the podcast, David Campion, on our Facebook page, made a comment about the men's race, the duel between Wout van Aert and Matthew van der Poel. He said, it's like the boat race. I don't know who's leading, but it's either Oxford or Cambridge. Now, for listeners outside the UK, <laughs> the boat race is held every year, and the only participants are Oxford and Cambridge. And the race on Sunday did feel a little bit like that after about the three and a half minute mark, didn't it? That's a pretty good analogy, actually. We'll talk about binary sporting rivalries later on, in fact, and, and just how great the Vanderpool-Van Aert rivalry is. But let's get straight on to the news roundup for this week. We'll kick off by tying up loose ends from last week. We hit the airwaves with two stages remaining in the Saudi Tour. I confidently predicted that Santiago Buitrago would ultimately take victory overall, but he was out-sprinted by Ruben Guerrero, on the very spectacular fourth stage, Guerrero and now Movistar also held onto the leader's jersey the following day on a final stage won by Simone Consonni of Cofidis. Incidentally, chaps, it's been a pretty good start to the season for the Italian riders. Uh, Davide Formolo was second overall in Saudi Arabia. Been some other notable Italian performances elsewhere from Ciccone, for example, in uh, Valenciana. We'll get onto that in a minute. Battistella there as well. Filippo Ganna, who you're about to watch in action today. Renat M, any word on Ganna's form? I mean, you watched him in action in Argentina where he was. We saw him in a kind of unfamiliar guise in the sense that he was, you know, one of the best riders uphill at the Alto de Colorado, wasn't it? Um, any word on what kind of form he's bringing to the European t- track champs? I think 105% because uh, it wasn't a coincidence that he was that good on that uh, mountaintop finish on uh, Alto de, de Colorado because he was really aiming at these Euros because the, the importance of these uh, Euro tracks is uh, that it's part of the, uh, it's the start of the Olympic qualification cycle towards Paris 2024. And that's why a lot of uh, high-profile riders like Ghana are really aiming to be at their best at these championships. So I'm quite convinced that Ghana is is um, he's probably at his best just trying to uh, outperform the, uh, the competition here. And uh, they are the reigning Olympic champions. So I'm quite sure they want to make a statement right away here at uh, the Euros because um, the other riders from his team uh, were also there in Argentina so Argentina was important for him and I think he'll probably use uh, the shape he has then coming out of these Euros to to do something in in the classic season because uh, as we all know track cycling is an excellent layer to build your condition on and to be uh, good in one day races uh, as well so I'm curious to see what he's going to do after I'll give you the barest bones from two other stage races that took place last week, the Etoile de Bessege and the Vuelta Valenciana, because we'll be talking quite a bit about both of those in part three. I had a very windy Bessege. The last three stages were won by Arnaud Delis. That was his second of the week. And Matthias Skelmorza was first across the line on Saturday. And on Sunday, clearly very informed Mads Pedersen won the final TT with a nasty uphill finish. The over... Overall was won by Nielsen Paulus. Also the winner of the GP La Marseillaise last week, which you attended, Lionel. 
thus proving that the curse of La Marseillaise is pure baloney or futez, as they say in France. At La Valenciana, meanwhile, Simone Velasco won in Sagunto. The former Giro d'Italia winner Theo Gagan Hart took his first victory since that career-defining success in 2020. And that wily old wolf, Rui Costa, yanked everyone's bib shorts down and tore the leader's jersey off Giulio Ciccone's back with a late attack to take the stage and overall on Sunday. As I said, we'll talk about both of those races later. There's also a significant one-day race at the weekend, the Colombian National Championships. That was won by Esteban Chavez of EF Education First Easy Post. Chavez is now 33, but still looks young enough to deliver your morning papers. Second there was Dani Martinez. Third was the teamless Nairo Quintana in a logo-less bright white jersey on a fluorescent yellow BMC. Chavez, did you see the pictures of that race? I mean, the crowds were astonishing. And the racing was chaotic. And it, it was like watching a different sport. It was just so vibrant. The atmosphere was febrile. The attacks just kept coming. And I know there was a lot of talk afterwards from some of our Colombian colleagues about what a shame it is that Colombia doesn't have a major race um, in light of the atmosphere that we saw at the weekend. And I, I couldn't help but agree when I watched a little bit of the Colombian nationals at the weekend. I was actually very, very charmed by, by the pictures I saw and the, the emotion Chavez displayed after his win was, was, uh, it was like he'd become world champion. And that is really something and it, it illustrates the importance of cycling in Colombia. And I must say, me too, I am sad there is no longer a Colombia 2.1 race there because it was on my to-do list, but then the race got into um, the corona troubles and then it didn't come back after the COVID crisis so I'm, I'm still hoping and praying that one day it'll come back because if you see the, the, the whole scene you described there of course uh, Colombia really deserves to have uh, uh, a high level race there and um, I have vivid memories of my for the moment first and only visit to Colombia for cycling reasons and I was my very first world back in 95 I was a bit too young to understand the magnitude of, of uh, cycling at that point in Colombia, but I do now, and I hope to be to go back soon there and think every cycling journalist is, is somehow dreaming about going to Colombia to cover a race there. I mentioned Nairo Man, uh, Nairo Quintana. Meanwhile, his old team, Arkea Samsic, seems to have its financial future secured until the end of 2025. The main sponsor, Arkea, having extended their contract until that date this week. More news, not about a race itself, but a race program, namely Tadej Pogacar's. Pog has announced he will start his season at the rather lovely Park Road Park Gravel Race Paraíso Interior on February 13th and thereafter stay in Andalusia to ride the Ruta del Sol. This, of course, means that he won't defend his title at the UAE Tour and that his now UAE teammate, Adam Yates, will surely finally win again on Jebel Hafid after two consecutive pog cinerations. although Yates did win there in 2020. Renat, I say that, that Adam Yates now becomes a sort of de facto favourite for UAE, but Remco, your old mate Remco and your countryman will also be in UAE, so it might be quite a battle. But I think he's going to try and win and win that race there, um, and now having Pogacar 
not being present is, is of course, uh, an assist to, to go for the win there. That being said, I think it's, it's astonishing that Pogacar is not doing UAE, or astonishing is maybe not the word, but surprising because it's the first time he's not going to do his um, sponsor's home race. And I think, in a way, I wouldn't call it disturbing, but it, it shows that the team has gotten completely uh, grown up and, and customized with uh, habits in cycling. They know that the importance of the race is there, but there are bigger goals. And that bigger goal, for sure, is this year uh, the Tour de France again. And I think um, uh, inside, they probably think we have to stimulate uh, Pogacar. Doing new races might give him a new build up a new elan to, 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 to perform again like he should in the Tour de France. I think that's maybe the reasoning behind. Um, in, in, in Flemish, we have this saying, uh, if you're hungry, you tend to eat more. I can't, can't translate it correctly, but different races can create more race hunger. I thought all Flemish idioms involved the church, uh, a church, a village church. If, if the church bell rings, it's time for lunch. I think that's one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's that one. Yeah, but it's true. It's true. Some, some, uh, some of those expressions, a lot of them have to do with the church. Like, how the kerk in the middle, how to keep the church in the middle. That's, That's really difficult in a race, though. In in Germany, they all involve a sausage of some sort. Pretty much, well, seventy five percent of idiomatic expressions involve sausage. <laughs> If the church bell rings, it's time for sausages for lunch. I think that's what we say in North Watford. Yeah. Um, incidentally, on Pogaccio, he rode the San Remo finale yesterday. Lionel, unlike you, he's not cagey about what he shares on Strava. Um, that was definitely not the most newsworthy thing to happen in San Remo yesterday. Um, the festival, the famous song contest is going on at the moment. Chiara Ferragni's monologue um, is from page news in all of the Italian papers this morning. Sorry, well, I was going to say, I hope he's not preparing for Milan San Remo because that would be a wasted effort. Milan San Remo no longer exists, or it's certainly not taking place this year, is it? Big change to the start town. That's true, actually. That should have been in the news. It's Abbiate Grasso San Remo. Not catchy, is it? No, but the, you can get a good, re, good risotto in Abbiate Grasso and those parts of the world, just to the west of Milan. But I don't think it changes that much does it it's just a bit less of po basin that the riders will have to do um, before they get to the turkino chaps talking of san remo former san remo winners bit of mark cavendish news he'll make his 2023 debut in an astana jersey at the tour of oman this week and he's also given a rare interview to our friend matt dickinson from the times newspaper in it cavendish talked about how refreshing it's been to find himself in a team where in his words he doesn't have to justify himself I've been in teams where I've been idolized and that's hard. You feel isolated. You feel that pressure. Been in teams where I've been kicked, not physically, but that's also not nice. Here, I just feel respected for what I've achieved. Also about the Eddie Merckx, the infamous Eddie Merckx record, which he shares the number of Tour de France stage wins. He said, everyone talks about the Merckx record, but if it was about setting a number, I could stop now. I hold the most wins at the Tour de France. Renard, I don't think we've had Lionel's view on this either yet. Cavendish, Astana, will it, will it be a marriage made in heaven or hell, do you think? Oh, very difficult 
question that I really don't know. Uh, the best thing is that it gives him a very clear run at the Tour de France. I mean, Astana is not a team that has another focus, especially now Miguel Angel Lopez is uh, not in the team. This is something that you've talked about a few weeks ago when it was finally confirmed that Cavendish was going to go to Astana. I think the best he could really hope for after the collapse of B&B hotels was to be in a team that is guaranteed to ride in the Tour de France. So that's a big tick. And to have an opportunity within that team to be, you know, in the, in the top sort of echelon of riders able to kind of set a race program that will suit him in the build up to the Tour de France, not feel maybe that pressure that he had to meet um, certain targets early in the year to kind of justify a place in the tour Astana really don't have a huge amount else going for them and for Astana it's a similarly free hit you know they might not be able to put an A team behind Mark Cavendish in terms of you know sprint lead out but they've got Case Ball who is is fast they'll they'll be able to put something together and they've got time to work on it in other races I think in terms of you know putting aside the fact that Astana's got a you know a very sort of up and down and slightly checkered history and it's a bit of a weird match in terms of you know one of the biggest stars uh, in the sport riding with a with a Kazakh team with the history it has and for a, a team boss of uh, you know with with his past Alexandra Vinokurov uh, put all that to the side on a purely sort of sporting sense I don't think Cavendish could have hoped for more really because it gives him freedom a certain lack of pressure but with enough of that drive and expectation that uh, yeah, he will get a chance to ride the races he wants to ride. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, he didn't have a pick of World Tour teams, did he? So probably the best solution that he could have found. Renard, what's your gut feeling about this deal? How does it smell to you? Well, it's interesting what Lionel says there about uh, Kiss Ball as a, as a lead out because um, the Dutchman doesn't really have experience in that kind of, of job. So I think he'll have to adjust because um, if you're sprinting for yourself, it's a different ball game than doing the lead out for might be a world-class sprinter, but emotionally, of course, as a Belgium, I'm opposed 100% against Cavendish breaking the Mercs, uh, the Merckx records. But uh, of course, he's he's a good chap and he deserves uh, that number 35. But uh, from an emotional point of view, as a Belgian, I say no, 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 don't break the Merckx record because that's really blasphemy or something else in the church. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to our title sponsors, Super Sapiens. Now, Super Sapiens have their own podcast. It's called the Super Sapiens Podcast, and you can listen to it wherever you're listening to the cycling podcast. It's hosted by Zylon Van Eck and Dr. David Littman, who, Daniel, you may be interested to know, as well as being a, an eminent sports scientist, is also deep into his London marathon training. Now, the most recent episode of the Super Sapiens Podcast features a long-distance time trialist, the American Ryan Collins, who was on course for the Olympic uh, US Olympic team 
but then was hit by a car and has had to kind of readjust his career and his goals. Uh, he's back racing now and he is the US 12-hour time trial champion. Daniel, I know you love time trialing. 12 hours of time trialing is obviously exponentially better than a you know a good British 10-mile time trial. Anyway, Ryan Collins has talked in the recent episode all about how he manages his energy levels and gains insights into his own training and performance. It's particularly important for an event that lasts 12 hours. Uh, the podcasts are really interesting listen. And if you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, it's a great place to start, as is the website supersapiens.com. Well, Renat, you talked about committing blasphemy before the break, the blasphemy of wanting Mark Cavendish to to beat the Eddie Mertz record or not. Um, I committed a kind of blasphemy or heresy, certainly for my personal code of conduct, by watching the cyclocross of the weekend. I certainly watched a replay. I didn't get the PhD in cyclocross. Um, I said that I would last week. Um, but I, I paid pretty close attention to what was, by all accounts, a, a raucous World Championship weekend. 50,000 people, I guess 50,000 people on each day or on the Sunday, was it, Renat? There, there were figures about um, ranging from 38,000 to 50,000 just for the Sunday, yeah. We got to see, certainly in the men's race, and I would argue in the women's as well, because the, we've also had some great rivalries or a great rivalry there this year. We got to see the show that everyone was lusting for, thirsting for, Van Aert versus Van der Poel. Question for you, Renard. Well, you, we know you weren't there, but you were watching. Did it live up to expectations, the race itself? We should also say that Mathieu van der Poel took the world title. For me personally, um, no. That might come as a surprise, but I was a bit disappointed with uh, how the race went. Not with the outcome. I mean, the outcome, okay, the outcome was great. Uh, that was a great finale. But uh, I missed Tom Pitcock at these worlds because I think with his presence, uh, the race would have been different. And what you had now was like uh, a blistering beginning by Mathieu van der Poel showing off in the first rounds about nearly... Uh, holding the wheel uh, as he said afterwards that was a fact apparently uh, everybody thought okay maybe he's comfortably in, in that wheel it looked to me the the cyclocross heathen as though van Aert, um or van der poel had van Aert on a fraying leash that the the leash sort of frayed over the course or, or it looked as though it was fraying over the course of the first half an hour and that it was going to break at, at, at one point it didn't i mean i saw the quotes from van Aert and he talked about how he found the first half hour very difficult and then he seemed to get a little bit more comfortable. But anyway, go on, go on, Renard. Yeah, judging by, by his comments afterwards, your, your perception is right. And then the strange thing, as opposed to races earlier this season, was that after that, that first war, the, the first three rounds, then, then the, uh, the pace really got, uh, got less. And at one point, they had like more than half a minute advantage on, on the first uh, guys in, in the pursuit. And then suddenly it was a, a mere 15 seconds. And that is really, um, I'd say, for the, the recent um, scenarios we've seen in cyclocross, unseen. Because nowadays they do the race from A to Z and, and they, they, they go full gas all the way. They didn't do that at, at this world. And I think in the end, that was an, a disadvantage for Van Aert because if we'd seen a third guy, the third dog in the game, for instance, Tom Pitcock, I think the only one possible to do it, then the race would have gone into the red all the way, like we saw in Diham. Diham in the uh, in the uh, the Christmas period. That race was uh, from 
uh, my point of view, the best race of the season. Uh, okay, not as important as Worlds, of course, obviously not. But the scenes we saw after that race, with you, we had the three guys uh, battling and out, uh, Wout, Mathieu and, and Tom. And then afterwards, one of the first comments of, of Wout after that race was, this was not healthy. I would have loved to hear him that say after Worlds. And he didn't say that. And it was a matter of emotion and analysis. And on, on in that way, I was a bit... Um, I wouldn't say disappointed, but I, I'd, I'd have liked to see a race that went all the way full gas because that's what cyclocross nowadays is. Like it's like a one-hour time trial with explosions and and riders uh, get dropped and stuff like that. It, that for me, that's the the most um, uh, interesting aspect of, of uh, modern-day uh, present uh, cyclocross. So I miss that. So Tom never, never, ever, I hope Tom Pitcock never, ever again forfeits for Worlds. What does the seasoned former president of the Sven Nice yeah. fan club, the UK branch, think? Well, I was delighted that Thibaut, his son, won the under-23 world title. Uh, so maybe there's an opening there as president of the Thibaut, P- uh, Thibaut Nice uh, fan club at some point. Yeah, the Thibaut um, Pino UK fan club is already spoken for. It is. Sorry, that was a, a, nearly a slip. Yeah, I mean, Renard, I think... Tom Pidcock would have introduced that extra element to the race, but on that course, it was a power course, wasn't it? It was a a sprinter's course. It was like a road criterium in in a lot of ways, firm ground. Um, You know, Vanderpool was uh, clearly the stronger rider, clearly knew he had the better sprint, and the race itself really was just about two sprints. The sprint off the line, which the Dutch did brilliantly, Lars van der Haar and Joris Nieuwenhaus, they really you know, help Van der Poel get right up to the front, get into, you know, the sort of first corners um, right at the start. I mean, they laid down a real marker there. There was never any doubt that Van Aert was going to have any difficulty uh, getting on terms with Van der Poel, but, you know, they really set their stall out right from the start, no messing about. And as I say, between, by the three and a half minute mark, the two of them were away and it was it was Vanderpool's repeated accelerations that that just basically distanced everybody else it's very impressive uh, to execute that and then of course it came down to the the final sprint and Vanderpool's sprint was, was reminiscent wasn't it of Amstel Gold a few years ago or Strada Bianca perhaps you know he, he took off like a rocket a bit of controversy on social media about him sprinting on the the brake hoods rather than on the drops I mean you know we've seen it before it, it's not necessarily conventional i remember being at liege baston liege in 2000 when uh, david echeverria of once was in with paolo bettini and davide rebelin and uh, well bettini won rebelin was also sprinting on the drops as bettini was and uh, echeverria was on the hoods and you know there was a lot of comment then about uh, well echeverria doesn't really know how to sprint because he's a climber you know there's no doubt about you know van um, van der Poel's, uh, brilliance on a bike I mean you know the fact that he was not in the optimum position and yet still produced that power maybe came down to the fact that he had the the bigger chain ring you know which which gave him that um, you know gave him just that little bit extra perhaps with Van der Poel you know his fifth world title he's getting up there now towards the the greats isn't he, he draws level with Albert Zweifel of Switzerland and Andre Dufres of France and Renato Longo of Italy who have five wins Eric de Vlaminck is uh, top of the men's list with seven. Not sure if he's got any llamas. Has Eric got any llamas, Daniel? Hmm. Or is that just Roger? I'm not sure, but R- Renat, it did make me... I was curious, actually, looking at this, the, the role of honour and seeing that 
Van der Poel was now sort of almost within touching distance of Eric de Vlaming. We don't, I haven't heard so much from Roger de Vlaming in the last couple of years about, you know, usually he had pretty, pretty outspoken views on Belgian classics riders, cyclocross races. What did Roger, do you know what he thought of, or what, what's he thought of this season and what he thought about the Worlds on Sunday? Well, it's true we haven't heard him about it, and maybe it's because he took uh, my advice, uh, therefore hard, to not speak with the media anymore, because that, that is really okay. degrading the legend Roger de Vlaming. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. What a shame. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, he's he's free to do whatever he wants to do, especially if he wants to speak up. But um, his health? How's his health? Yeah. He had some health uh, issues. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I think it's it's got better, um, and um, he'll be a legend forever. And uh, of course, uh, Roger, Roger, as you say in English, he, he, has the, he has his heart on his tongue and he'll never change. And it's not for nothing that he was uh, called in Italy back in the days when he was doing uh, the Giro, uh, when he was uh, winning 22 stages there, uh, when he was uh, the reign, the master of Tireno. Uh, they called him Polemico. So nothing's changed really. Um, Roger de Vlaming, Roger de Vlaming, will always have an uh, <laughs> an opinion that that uh, creates dust. Um, actually, I wanted to refer to the, the things Lionel was saying. I agree on on um, Van der Poel winning the power display and having the best day at, at that race on that race course because the race course, of course, was also determining the race and the outcome. And I think the surface was against Wout van Aert. Uh, surface is of course neutral but uh, it wasn't ideal for his power display so in, in that way he was a bit handicapped and um, speaking about Rebelin I want to add that he was a sprinter because he won in the mid-90s a 40 bunch uh, group sprint in the Classica San Sebastian but that doesn't matter <laughs> anyway um, the great Rebelin late Rebelin sadly we have to say um, but what um, struck me the most after um, Hogerheide was um, the uh, the surprise Wout van Aert really exposed after that finish, um, that sprint finish, because he said, I forgot to do my sprint, and that really is a shame. I mean, I would have loved to see them do the sprint starting at uh, the same time. And now he was like, uh, he lost it the moment the sprint started, like Lionel said, um, and it was also a little bit uphill. So that was really something uh, van Aert should have thought of, and it uh, it. it uh, yeah, brought back memories right away of that lost Tour of Flanders where uh, also a slow approach sprint was won by Mathieu van der Poel. Uh, that combined with the slight uphill and the fact that Hogerheide is really part of his training course, a straight home win with everything, uh, yeah, that can make, makes it legendary, if you ask me. I was going to say, Renard, I mean, it did look like those two were racing a different event to everybody else. I'm not saying that uh, no one in the, the rest of the pack managed to ride over the bunny hops, but consistently uh, Van Aert and Van der Poel rode the bunny hops. Uh, I know it's a bit more congested and the pace perhaps a bit slower behind and, you know, they're a bit more jostling. So there was a lot more people running on foot. But I do wonder whether actually the two of them, the, the obstacles need to be a bit higher for them just to, to, to force a bit more nuance into the into the event. Because like I say, it was a bit of a criterium type course and, and it didn't really play to the strength of Van Aert he needed it to be you know perhaps a little bit more technical uh, places where he could maneuver van der Poel about a little bit but actually they, they kind of rode the same pattern every lap didn't they uh, van der Poel kind of you know um, 
went on the front. They came onto that road section and, and Van Aert did a kind of token turn on the front, but it didn't look like uh, he really had the opportunity at any point where he could really put on a bit of pressure. After that half an hour mark, and it's interesting, he did say he struggled in the first half an hour, but started to feel a bit better because after half an hour, Van Aert did try to apply a bit of pressure, but it didn't look like there was any chance that Van der Poel was going to crack. And uh, there was nowhere on the course that really tested those two, particularly technically. So there wasn't really the prospect of a mistake. It would have had to have been a catastrophic mistake for anything to happen. Not saying it wasn't an absorbing race, but really you could have condensed it down to sort of, you know, four and a half minutes. I have to agree on, on that. Um, but uh, the, the course was what it was. Eh? I mean, uh, it was a typical... Adrie van der Poel course, he likes those clean courses and I'm not saying he's designed it specifically with his son's abilities in mind but it's just uh, the kind of race uh, Adrie really loves. you got to give credit to him for building that course because I know how the course has evolved over the years in Hogerheide and it would be a shame if the race wouldn't stay in the World Cup in, in the coming seasons. Um, it's a matter of, of, um, of perspective. Eh? If you have a different course builder, you'll have a different course. That's just how it goes in cyclocross and it's, it's part of the, uh, of the game, really. Chaps, before we move on, I think it'd be worth just spending five minutes glorying once again in this fantastic rivalry, which you know came to a head again at the weekend. There's not much that we can say that hasn't already been said, but you know, as someone who doesn't really, who hasn't really been bitten by the cyclocross bug, who thinks it's a bit silly to go upstairs with a bike over your shoulder, <laughs> um, nonetheless, I can't fail to appreciate you know how unique, not just in cycling but in sport, this rivalry is. I mean, it's quite difficult to to think of to find other sports where other individual sports where you have a a rivalry that's been sort of so consistent which has the longevity of this rivalry it's been going for an awfully long time Um, and, and also the closeness of it um, the gladiatorial nature of it. I mean, it's a sort of zero-sum game. It's kill or be killed. I mean, I, I was just thinking about other individual sports where people might think there have been great rivalries over the years. I mean, tennis is a good example. Obviously, we've had this fantastic generation of Federer and Nadal, and then we've had Djokovic and Djokovic versus um, Nadal and so forth. But, you know, you, you compare the number of times that those guys have gone head-to-head um, with Van der Poel and Van Aert. I mean, Federer has played Nadal I mean, Lionel, how many times would you guess that Roger Federer and, and Rafa Nadal have played each other over the years? I mean, I have no idea. Go on, have four, a... 40? 40, exactly. How did you Is get it? that? <laughs> 40 in two, in two decades. Wow. Never, never, more, never more than 50 times. I'm sorry, never more than five times a year. Federer, Djokovic, 50 times. Rafa Nadal, Djokovic, 60 times. Now, Van der Poel and Van Aert have gone up against each other 180 times over the years, according to cyclocross24.com. And 11 times just this season, where we sort of think of them now as part-time cyclocross riders. And, um, you know, they're going to have pretty much identical spring programs as well. And... And I suppose the only thing missing from the rivalry, from my point of view, Renard, is more hostility and more tension and more friction. And it seems to me they've entered even a new phase over the last year or so when there was the threat at one point of this rivalry turning nasty. But it seems they've gained even more respect for each other over the last year or so. What do you think? No, it's it's never turned really nasty, and I like that because I've I've seen those guys grow up in their sport. Um, 
the first races I covered were their junior races at cyclocross uh, worlds and world cups. So I can only say that that um, if they wouldn't be as big as they both are in their own uh, range in the sport, then they could be best friends because they have a lot of similarities. But because of their careers. That makes it different for, for those guys to be friends, really. But uh, what you say about um, that growing respect is, is surely surely right. What about, their, what about their fans? How is the tribalism between their fans these days? That's really difficult for me to judge on because, in my opinion, in cyclocross, the... Um, the life and or death battle between fans like we used to know in, in the era between uh, Sven Ness, <laughs> um, the chairman is here, of course, and, and Mario de Klerk and, and of, or other rivals from, from Sven Ness was a bit more harsh and sometimes, as you said, it was, it was more uh, of a battle and we don't have that anymore. But I think it's, it's a sign of, of modern times. I mean, you see that in, in different sports. You see that also in, in Formula One, they ride... Uh, almost uh, they cut the corners and then afterwards the, in the press conference nicely arranged they say blah 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 and they respect each other and, and they congratulate each other you can call it a shame but at the other hand I, I can also call it common sense because it wouldn't help either Mathieu or either Wout in their in the development of their careers they know they're going to confront each other in new races to come and they, the next time will be Strade Bianche that's their next duel Though it's strange to to speak about the duel because there's a uh, another 178 riders uh, starting that race, so um, that's the nice thing about that rivalry between Mathieu and Wout. We're talking about a rivalry. We're talking about a clash of the titans. We're talking about rumble in the jungle, but basically they're two riders of a big bunch, and the fact that they stand out from that bunch really gives it a very special edge and and uh, a magical. Uh, thing sort of that you have to feel privileged to be witness of this cycling era the mall in the mud not the rumble in the jungle the mall in the mud uh, just gonna I think Van der Poel and Van Aert certainly on the cyclocross side they kind of keep each other going you know one if if one didn't ride the other mm, would probably drop point. it as well yeah. they, you know that they are they're in it for that duel for that battle and I do sometimes wonder you know when when they've got so many more so many bigger fish to fry you know when you look at their um, ability, their kind of stature in the current sport, which we know the, the depth of field is so much deeper now than it was even in the 90s, the 80s. You know, um, I was comparing Matthew Van Der Poel's Palmares to his dad, Adri Van Der Poel's, and they're roughly similar. You know, we think of uh, Matthew Van Der Poel as a kind of Galactico, one of the titans, as he said, Renard. You know, Adri Van Der Poel was a really quality classics rider who had a very long career, crossed over with the cyclocross, only won one world title, you know, one Liège, one Amstel, one Flanders couple of Tour de France stages and you wouldn't have said Adri van der Poel was a Galactico of cycling in the 80s I mean close you know certainly Premier League but not of the same stature that Matthew van der Poel um, enjoys today but Matthew van der Poel you know yet to kind of unlock the door to kind of multiple uh, monument wins as really is is Wout van Aert they're kind of almost cancelling each other out and so I wonder whether that's part of um, the motivation to carry on with the cyclocross, you know, if one does it, the other has to do it. Um, I can't 
I do wonder now Van der Poel's got on to five wins, whether he will have his sights set on uh, equaling or surpassing Eric de Vlaminck's seven or uh, equaling the greatest of all time, Mariana Voss, who's got eight world titles, of course. And uh, I can't let the cyclocross section go without just reminding everybody that I saw all this coming 21 years ago when I went to interview Adrie van der Poel at his home in Capellen, just over the border from Hoogerheide. And little Matthew was pootling around the front room on a, on a little bicycle on a course that I think was designed by Adrie van der Poel. I don't know, possibly. <laughs> um, but two last comments on the cyclocross before we move on. First of all, oh, not not two last comments. Like, me, I can talk about this all day. From, yeah. <laughs> two last things from me, and then a question for Renard. Really, uh, first of all, I think the Dutch should all have been relegated a, a few places for that jersey. It looked like it had been through the wash. I mean, what's happened to the famous orange? It's uh, it's a travesty. And just a mention for. Cameron Mason, the British rider, to be more precise, Scottish rider. He's from Linlithgow. We've got a lot of friends of the podcast in Linlithgow. He was ninth, the first non-Belgian or Dutch rider. Um, a very good performance for him. Uh, but I mean, it's a bit like a Belgian finishing ninth in the Inverness caber tossing competition, isn't it? If such a thing exists. Our colleague Jan-Peter de Vligo writes for Het Newsblad, was talking to me earlier in the week about... Um, cyclocross going to New York and he was he was sort of searching for similes or analogies and I suggested I don't know this might be like a Super Bowl in Herardsburg and or Stroop Waffles for Thanksgiving I don't know <laughs> and my very last question Renard just briefly because we saw some really innovative TV coverage didn't we with the the drone which I think was on a wire following them through the woods it's definitely the level of presentation and and the the, the way the event looked were, felt like a sort of big step on. And I think, you know, with that stadium atmosphere that they have with the forty or fifty thousand people and with this this duel between the two greats, um, you know, it really did look like a great event. Uh, it was a great event, and funny you're mentioning the drone because the drone was actually introduced in in cyclocross for the very first time, um, not this winter, but. Um, last winter in in Gavre. back then the the broadcaster was experimenting with it and then after the race they got uh, it got banned by the UCI in a first moment but then UCI of course acknowledged that the the, the extra value would be something so I'm, I'm really glad we got to see the drone they were Belgian operators <laughs> handling the drone Jan Kromelink the the gentleman is called apparently a former uh, motocross rider who he he had a heart attack, I think, and then he started flying drones as a sort of second career. Can you clarify, was, was it on a wire through the woods or was it an actual free-flying drone? I know, it was not on a wire. And, and the thing is, oh. that, that, that was uh, the amazing thing. They were flying live. I mean, you can automate or you can program a drone to do a, a certain flight, but they, they didn't. So that was, in my sense, wow. uh, was quite, it was a bit risky. You can call it risky, but I, I loved it, of course. Yeah. Because yeah. I saw, a, I did see a big cable and I, I thought that maybe it was a bit like those drones that they have in uh, football stadiums where that, you know, it kind of flies above on wires. But this was a free flying zone, a drone. I mean, I, you know, everyone always asks, when will this happen in, in the stage races? I, I guess flying it, uh, you know, 50 metres or 100 metres is a very different thing to flying it 200 kilometres. Yeah, and the problem is the crowds. I mean, they had to they had to shut off a section of the course in order to be able to tr to fly the drone, didn't they? And I think there's already been a response from I don't know whether the UCI, but people involved with broadcasting, and road racing, or, and involved in road racing have said that this is 
probably under current rules um, impossible. You would have to cut. I mean, I was thinking about the Poggio in San Remo would be a great place. And um, if you shut off maybe the last, you know, 500 meters of the Poggio, um, but maybe that would, that robs some of the beauty of professional road cycling that it does take place in an open, open to the public arena. You could do it on the descent where crowds don't tend to gather, maybe. That would be dramatic, wouldn't it? The drone following the riders down the descent on the Poggio. Credit you with that idea, Daniel. (laughs) Yeah, and the drone can do things that the helicopter can't do because uh, the drones can get closer. And I think that's one of the the major problems in... in, um, incorporating the drone in in a tv broadcast it's the the marriage with the helicopter isn't 100 percent, or the match isn't easy and might create extra risk so but i'm quite sure in the future there will be solutions for that with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Room Wi-Fi or linking my laptop to my phone to get online. Uh, not particularly worried that people are going to steal trade secrets from the cycling podcast, but just a bit um, worried about, you know, the security of password data, bank login details, that kind of thing. There are, of course, other uses for a VPN. You definitely can't use it to watch Arsenal matches in Berlin, though. That's really not allowed. But if you want to see how NordVPN can keep your online security incredibly secure, watertight, in fact, you can get an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com TCP. You'll get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and a bonus gift. And it's also completely risk-free with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So that's nordvpn.com TCP for the cycling podcast. You'll get a huge discount and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't like what you've bought. Okay, chaps. Well, I said, I think I said that we were going to be focusing on the Etoile de Bessege and the Vuelta Valenciana in this part, part three. We're going to switch things up because Renard's a busy man. He's got to go off to the track to commentate on some track racing shortly. And we're going to talk instead. I said at the start of the show that Belgium will soon be crazy in love with an emerging rider. Um, that rider is Arnaud Delis. Uh, it's a French name. He's from Wallonia, so I think I can pronounce it in French. Renard Arnaud Delis. Lee spelled L-I-E, so literally Arnaud of Lies. Sounds like something that David Gaudou would call Arnaud Demar. Um, he will turn, Renard, 21, two days before Milan San Remo. I predicted at the start of the year that he might win Milan San Remo. Um, He's got 12 wins already in his pro career. Two of them were last week in Etoile de Bessege. As I said, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. 
Um, he won on his third day as a pro last year in the Challenge Mallorca, finished the season's first season sixth in the UCI ranking. So he's he's the talk of the sport at the moment. Um, he's also charmed people with this, the backstory he has. He, he grew up on a farm in, the, in Wallonia. He's known as the Bull of Wallonia, I believe. Um, he said he'll never leave from his farm from Wallonia. He's responsible for 450 sheep on the family farms. So shades of kind of Thibaut Pinot. Renard, I believe that you have been to that family farm near Bastogne, um, near the halfway point of Liège Bastogne, and you've milked one of his cows. Is <laughs> wow. this true? Well, uh, yeah, there's a story to it. That's right. Um, it's it's so true that I paid a visit to his family farm where he's still living. He still lives at home and is still helping at the farm. And um, if he's at home, and he said to me that that. He's not going to change that as long as he, he lives at home. If he's at home, he just helps at the farm. And one of the, the daily rituals of helping is milking the cow. So I got the chance of assisting him. Eh? I wouldn't say, I think it, the cows wouldn't have survived it if I would really have done the trick. So um, <laughs> it was kind of adventurous. I, I got to, to wear his overall, you, you say that, his gear. Uh, that he usually yeah. uh, uses to, to milk the cows and that was necessary because those cows have natural, um, <laughs> how would I put it, natural things going on during the milking process so it's kind of dangerous. Was it, was it pooing on you and art? Is that what you're saying? Uh, leave it out, Lionel. We don't have scatological content in the cycling podcast. And um, Renard, was it one of the? Uh, I believe he has four cows, and this information is culled from a, a very good interview our colleague uh, Gaetan Chariot uh, did for Le Keep a few weeks ago. I think he has four cows that are of a special Swiss breed that he's particularly proud of. They're called Simone, Washout, Sidonie, and Noisette. Yeah, he has a couple of cows that are uh, not for slaughtering i mean <laughs> i shouldn't tell that but uh, uh those are special cows and they they run around the farm and if you, if you go into the big barn then suddenly this little cow comes and and yeah it was the whole the whole visit for me actually was unforgettable i mean not being in 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 uh, the milking department of, of the farm but just the reception I, I got there by the the lee family was so warm and cheerful it's in belgian luxembourg um, that does exist uh, not to be uh, switched with uh, the other luxembourg and and the way he's grounded with his feet to earth i'm i'm quite sure that that is a solid basement to make a great a great career in in cycling because the guy doesn't need any mental coaching he just has to live in his farm or stay at his farm and it makes him so grounded that he has an advantage to a lot of other riders as soon as he he steps uh across the door at home he's in a different world and and uh, the mental um process is uh, of of the the risks and uh, the stress and everything that combines with with uh, a high profile rider's uh, career is is gone i mean and that thing is i think the whole farm and the whole background for arnaud de Lee is is an extra asset to to become one of the greatest classics riders ever because that's nowadays the talk uh, or the thing to say in belgium that he's going to be like um something of um I'm, I'm searching for the, the nice, the, the correct word. He's going to be like a combination of Philippe Gilbert and Tom Bonen. That's the latest on Arnaud de Lee. Uh, have there been any comparisons? It strikes me that he's he's 
palette of abilities. He's quite similar to Wout Van Aert as well. Um, I mean, he's won a lot of bunch sprints, but he doesn't see himself as a bunch sprinter. I mean, he's talked about this a lot. He doesn't want to be confined to that role. I think he won... The, the race that got him noticed by Lotto was the Belgian Junior Championships a couple of years ago, and he won with a 110-kilometer breakaway. And that's how he sees himself continuing. Yeah, yeah, so true. Of course, he, he knows to, how to perform a, a good sprint, and I think he's a possible uh, Grand Tour stage winner in every Grand Tour in the future. <clears throat> but um, he has more pedigree in, inside himself. So the, um, the cobbles, uh, I also think... Certain races with with uh, with climbs won't be uh, impossible in the future, so we'll have to see how he develops as a rider. But I'm I'm quite sure that that um, the combination of of talent and um, mental approach, he's more than a diamond in the rough. Renat, he has declared that Milan San Remo is an objective, thankfully for me. But Lotto Destiny have also got a rider, Caleb Ewan, who has his sights set on that race, has had his sights set on that race for a while, has come pretty close to winning it. How will they play those two cards? Do you know? I think Milan San Remo really suits his abilities. Um, we have to wait and see what happens till then because that's still a while. And, and you know what they say about early wins. Um, then they don't always last. I mean, uh, we don't know how how good he is at the moment. Is he already 100%? I, I would hope for him he's not. If he's not, then his chances of winning Milan San Remo are real. So uh, I think that is the the main the main thing they're following Arnaud de Lee. Uh, apart from, from his um, talent and, and his background, I can also acknowledge that the guy really is... is uh, yeah... It's such a simple guy and I must say I was really charmed by, by his approach of everything, uh, life, cycling and uh, if, if, it, if his cycling career doesn't turn out to be a big thing, then he just stick with the farm and he'll be happy. So that's a very nice thing. Well, farming farming and cycling have always gone together, certainly up until 20 years or so. Um, you know, we've seen a, a kind of different different demographic has emerged in the last 20 years but the number of great cyclists who come from farming families is quite extraordinary i mean i'll just just give you a, a bit of an abridged list uh, raymond pulidor bernard Hino, uh, fausto copi miguel indurain sean kelly a man you know well lionel um, francesco moser bernard tevne uh, costante girardengo joaquin agostino henny kuiper adri van der poel who we mentioned earlier the list goes on and on and on well, I think historically, uh, there are probably more small holdings, more farmers. I mean, I'm out of my depth here talking about European farming trends, but, you know, <laughs> cycling traditionally was a kind of an Who escape. Who did we have on? Oh, we had um, <laughs> Tobias Foss. Didn't, Tobias Foss the other week told us that one of his great passions in life is to play farming simulator on wow. his, I don't know, Xbox Brilliant. or whatever Brilliant. Well, I mean, uh, for a lot of people in, uh, I don't know, the days gone by, cycling was an escape from the farm or the factory wasn't it and i suppose uh well a, a life on the road racing around uh you know some of the most beautiful parts of the world especially if you, you're a young lad with uh or, or a young woman with with athletic talent why not would you would you well renard you tell me would you rather be racing your bike all over the world or would you rather be milking the cows i mean you're the only <laughs> one of us i think who has experience of uh, certainly cow milking yeah. 
Well, from <laughs> from what I've experienced with Arno Deli, I think it's a golden combination because the one thing uh, milking the cows is mental training, and it helps you on the bike. So. Uh, um, psychology has become very important in cycling but um, you're asking me the impossible choice for Arnaud Lee. I think he himself will never want to choose but I think of course if you're not into farming then you'll probably choose cycling above above the cow shit because that's what's happening there as well <laughs> you end up in the cow shit milking the cows on that indecorous note Renard I know the track centre or the track is beckoning I know you need to get off and do your other job which is commentating on the European Track Championships Renard I'm going to thank Thank you for your company today and well we will no doubt be seeing each other at a race pretty soon and probably on the podcast as well thank you renat and enjoy thanks. the next few days thanks for having me lionel and uh, daniel cheers well nice to hear from renat they're not from the horse's mouth but from the cow's udders uh from renat i mean wouldn't expect I any don't know. yeah belgium's answer i said belgium's <laughs> answer to beyonce for for uh, uk <laughs> listeners belgium's answer to rebecca loose maybe i don't know oh dear he's he's literally out there he's out there reporting in the field for us isn't he um, <laughs> anyway just on Arno Delis, because uh, there is a lot of excitement about him just because of that versatility. I mean, you know, Belgians are notorious for getting carried away with uh, with with young riders hailing them as the new uh, Eddie Merckx. I mean, I thought Renard was quite restrained there, saying that he's he's merely the combination of Tom Bone and, and Philippe Gilbert. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that's really quite restrained. Um, but I I do think you know Delis, he is fast. Um, and just looking at his amateur career and, uh, you know, the, the races he's done done well in so far, uh, clearly versatile. And the, your prediction, I, I really hope for my sake you're not right about him winning Milan-San Remo because <laughs> it would be, be absolutely galling for me for you to get that right from so far out. But uh, with Milan-San Remo and, and Caleb Ewan in the team, I mean, Ewan's been twice second at Milan-San Remo, missed it, of course, last year because he had a stomach bug in the days leading up to the race. And that really left Lotto Sudal, as they were then, kind of bereft. They had no real other cards to play. So going into a race as long as Milan-San Remo, where one minute a rider can be feeling great and thinking, yes, I'm going to be there on the Via Roma. And then the next minute, they it can all the lights can go out very suddenly. Uh, having two riders who could finish off a sprint, whether from a big group or a small group, is a good strategy. But also there's this fascinating aspect of beginner's luck and, and Milan-San Remo. Is it a race for the seasoned riders who know every inch of the Cipolessa and the Poggio? I think or, no. Or, well, the first, the last first-time winner of Milan-San Remo, Mark Cavendish in 2009. That's a long time ago. It's not, it's it not is a long time. List- since then, it's not littered with, you know, green talent having, you know, pulled off their first. Yeah, but uh, there are a lot of guys, there are a lot of guys who have had their best Milan San Remo in their first appearance um, going back over the years. Um, and I, I've always had the impression that it's a race um, over which riders tend to tie themselves in mental mm. knots as the years go by, particularly riders who should, in theory, have a Milan San Remo in their Palmares, guys like Peter Sagan. I mean, even going back to Eddie Merckx in the 60s, it was the first big classic that he won, and he obviously, well, he won seven in total. But, uh, you know, that was an example as well of it being the first real, the first hit, the first, well, the breakthrough victory um, for a rider that went on to win a lot of classics. And, you know, you could argue, I think it was Wout Van Aert's first monument, wasn't it? 
Um, but it, it is a race that I, I've always felt that people can overthink. And, you know, I always talk mm. every single year, I talk about hesitation being the key deciding factor in people not winning Milan San Remo. And it, it is almost a race where it can possibly pay to switch your brain off for seven hours or however long it takes. Absolutely. It's the, it's the race where the riders have to be in the moment. Not Milan San Remo, mindfulness San Remo, maybe. I don't know. Sort of uh, just have to live in the moment and, and take whatever comes at you. But I think on De Lee, I think it would, you know, there needs to be something, maybe another step between the point he's at now and, and winning Milan San Remo. Maybe, you know, if he wins Kerner, Brussels Kerner, I'll be with you, um, you know, in, in thinking that he has a great shout for... Uh, well, the first monument of the year. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our longest serving supporters. Longest serving? Longest standing supporters. Uh, well, they are serving because uh, they've served me up a box of Science in Sport goodies. And I'm in great company with my Science in Sport products because they support a range of the world's finest sports teams with their range of nutrition products. As we know, they've been supporting Ineos Grenadiers since 2015 when they were Team Sky, of course. Also supporters and suppliers to the German Cycling Federation, the Australian Cycling Federation, British Rowing, Harlequins Rugby Team, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, the NBA basketball team, and uh, Daniel... You deliberately, you're deliberately not mentioning Arsenal. Uh, well, officially, cover your ears, Daniel. Also, Tottenham Hotspur, who became a, mm. partner, <laughs> a partner of Science in Sport <laughs> in 2022 and uh, fueling Tottenham Hotspur to, I don't know, what, third or fourth place in the Premier League? And I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to alienate probably Tottenham fifth. supporters. Probably, probably fifth or sixth. <laughs> don't want to alienate Tottenham supporters there. Uh, check out the full Science in Sport range at scienceinsport.com. Lionel, after that, we shall... Proceed, Renat no longer with us, with our analysis, our chat about the weekend's racing. As I said last week, so much racing, it's like a game of Cluedo piecing together who won where and how. I, it got me thinking, Lionel, um, I think w we should ask the listeners, is there anyone out there among our listeners, I'm sure there is, who believes that they watch every minute of available cycle oh. racing over the course of a season? Do you know what, Simon Mottram, um, another former sponsor of ours, former Found, oh, I'm sorry, well, he is still the founder of Rafa Clothing. He once told me that he watches everything, absolutely everything. Um, I watch most things, but on repeat. A lot of it's on repeat. Um, well, I really struggle on repeat. I, it has to be live for me, sport. I, I, I watched the cyclocross on catch-up because I was away over the weekend, but I was... I was really, everyone who messaged me, uh, who's even vaguely connected to cycling over the weekend, the first thing I said back was, no spoilers, please. I, I can't watch it with the same level of intensity if I know the outcome. I don't mind watching it a second time and trying to pick up some, um, you know, nuance to the racing, certainly with the big classics or mountain stages in the tour, what have you. But I like to... I like to watch it without knowing what's going to happen. That's the essence of live sport for me. But uh, I, yeah, you're, you're odd of watching it, yeah. knowing all the results. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I get spoiled. I watch football matches live, but they still get spoiled by usually my dad texting me three or four seconds before something significant happens because the you know the pictures arrive at different times in different places and it takes a while to get to Germany. Um, <laughs> Lionel, to the racing. Two big stage races 
finished at the weekend, the Vuelta Valenciana. I think it, well, it's got a more convoluted name than that, but we'll call it the Vuelta Valenciana. And the Etoile de Bessege. Now, last week, our episode was called Interstellar Domination, I think. And that was because Antarmarché was celebrating topping the world rankings well they had another fantastic week in valenciana or on the valencia coast because rui costa their veteran portuguese rider we talked about them recycling upcycling older riders rui costa is a good example of that and he won the final stage and he nicked the overall as well and well, this certainly surprised Giulio Ciccone, who was marooned in the group behind a Rui Costa attack behind, we sort of countered behind Timon Aronsman and snuck away. Ciccone didn't have any teammates help him at that point. And yeah, it was a bit of a heist. It was a bit of a holdup. Um, Rui Costa, really curious rider. I find Lionel a very difficult rider to categorize, to pigeonhole. I mean, what is a Rui Costa? He sort of exists on a kind of Iberian peninsula of my outer consciousness. Um, I was trying to think earlier in the week whether I've interviewed him. And I think I've interviewed him several times. But this is not any sort of comment on how interesting or not he is in interviews. But he's a, he's a writer who escapes my sort of understanding. He's good at a lot of different things. Won three consecutive tours de Suisse. We once christened him the Asparagus. He was one of those riders alongside Simon Spillack, didn't we? Because he was always in bloom sort of late spring. If you're an Asparagus in Germany, it'd be slightly earlier in April. Asparagus is, is, is like a religion in Germany in April. But um, he was always very good in May and June, wasn't he? And he's enjoying a bit of an Indian summer, or certainly based on the first few weeks of this season. Yeah, and he's... Uh well doing it for the old guys isn't he or, or maybe he's uh, beating the trend for ever younger riders he rode with the the vigor of two 18 year olds at the weekend didn't he yeah i agree he tricky to pigeonhole not really a grand tour contender uh, very good as you say in the tour de swiss um you know but hasn't really backed that up with any other um, you know, major performances in similar types of stage races. I remember the first Tour de France stage he won way back in 2011. It was at Superbest, which was one of those kind of, you know, almost mystical climbs in the Massif Central. And he really sort of picked the pockets of uh, Cadell Evans was up there. Samuel Sanchez was up there. Uh, I'm, I'm looking back at the results now to, to remind myself who was, was also, um, you know, behind. But it was a kind of a... He went on a sort of medium range raid and uh, that was the moment that he really announced himself on the biggest stage. Won the world title, of course, with... Well, with I think a... he announced... The moment he announced himself on the biggest stage was when... Did he throw a wheel or have a wheel thrown at him by Carlos Barredo at the end of a Tour de France stage? I think even earlier than that. It may well have been, yeah. He won the world title with a sort of, you know, slightly ghostly effort as well, didn't he? Um, you know, he sort of, you know, got away in a... In a, uh, a uh, just the, the two of them, Joaquin Rodriguez, and well, at the time I can remember thinking, well, this is Rodriguez to lose, and he did lose it. Rui Costa kind of picked his pocket a bit, didn't he, in the sprint? And uh, yeah, he's gone to Antemarche, and well, you don't want to just repeat the the phrase, the upcycling, but in a team that probably demands a few results, he's uh, he's pulled one off there with uh, the final stage and, and the overall classification. And, uh, well, a long, long career now. You look back, started out at Benfica, 
uh, many years with Castapan that became Movistar and then Lamprey and then UAE Team Emirates. And it looked like, you know, retirement was just around the corner, but uh, a sort of a, an Indian summer in the spring for him. Lionel, before we talk about another theme, you alluded to it earlier, the, the, the sort of baby, I won't call them baby boomers, but the baby bloomers, the 20, well, sort of 18 to 21 year olds, 22 year olds thriving everywhere. There was one as well in Valenciana, we'll maybe mention that in a minute. Um, let's talk about another rider, resurgent rider in Valenciana. Um, I mentioned in the news roundup, Theo Gegenhart won for the first time since that Giro d'Italia win in 2020. Um, he looked in outstanding form all week and he finally got his win in, I suppose, the Queen stage. Now, he, I think on social media, he's talked about what a great winter he had, just an undisturbed winter. I remember speaking to him at the start of the winter. He talked about how much he was looking forward to just avoiding airports um, for a few months and really just being sort of settled at home. I think he spent a lot of the winter in London and just had an, an uninterrupted build up to 2023 maybe I mean we'll probably talk to him in the next few weeks and ask him a bit more about this but maybe mimicking a little bit of what he experienced in that COVID season which then allowed him to perform so well in the Giro d'Italia bit of a monkey off his back that isn't it the first win since the the COVID Giro I mean it's a fair old time ago now isn't it over well two and a half years almost isn't it and so a long time for a rider of his ability and uh, profile to go but he's in that team where if you're not absolutely on the very very top uh, level it's very very easy to get shunted down the order and and find not even being the sort of the first climbing domestique but being the second or third in in stage races being you know even though he is a grand tour winner there's a lot of uncertainty about what his season might look like. I don't know whether you've got any intel on that, Daniel, but listener Richard Dawson uh, asked to write, what do you think Theo Gagenhart's season looks like? It's been a fairly quiet time for him, wondering if he still has a leadership position at Ineos. I'm assuming he means for the Grand Tours. But with their you know, roster of riders, you know, it, the first race to win is to get into the team for your mm. Grand Tour of choice. And then the second race is to get the leadership position or at least a co-leadership position. And that's before you start thinking about riders from other teams and, and actually getting onto the road. It's a, it's a real tricky position for, you know, anyone in a team like Ineos Grenadiers. And I think the same applies to Jumbo Visma. So perhaps with uh, him, you know, striking out and uh, getting, getting himself a stage win, I think he got relegated a couple of days before that, didn't he? For which I thought was a, a, a little bit harsh, but... Um, you know, mm. clearly he's come out of the blocks this spring and uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the team has in store for him as the season unfolds. Another British rider, Lionel, and this does bring us to what I call the baby bloomers, Thomas Gloag, sixth Gloag. I, I get the pronunciation yips every time I have to pronounce his name. G-L-O-A-G, and he's English. He was sixth on GC, and he was second on the Queen stage, and he's 21. He's from London, I believe, and he's a rider who I think could have joined Ineos Grenadiers, decided to go down a different path, join Jumbo Visma. And one of this, I suppose we're now in the third wave. L'Equipe had a piece the other day about the United Kingdom waiting for its second wave of cycling stars after the, the initial 
burst of the Wigginses and the Cavendishes. I think we're really on the third generation now, aren't we? And there are a lot of them. I mean, we talked about it, Lionel, didn't we, over text message over the weekend about guys like Sam Watson at Group on IFDJ. I mean, there are almost more than you can keep track of. And we'll talk in a second about the, the Ineos riders at Bessege. But Gloag certainly looks like an outstanding climbing prospect. Yeah, he does, and and funny we're talking about the the sort of the farming heritage of of so many of the great riders. This wave of British riders are almost the complete opposite, aren't they? They're the, the sort of the hipsters from, you know, um, L- London in a lot of cases. Ethan Hayter, Fred Wright, um, uh, Theo Gagan Hart, of course, and uh, I think that says a lot about the 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 kind of the the wave of people who got interested in cycling during the Bradley Wiggins, Mark Cavendish, Geraint Thomas years but also i think have fathers yeah parents a lot of them have fathers and mothers who who are cyclists parents cycling families i mean you know it stands to reason doesn't it there are there are a lot more cycling families around uh now and uh and so yeah there's there's been a real kind of you know a, a kind of quiet revolution in the profile and status of cycling in the uk and it's no longer a kind of a a a quirky you know, slightly oddball pursuit that it was back in my day when, uh, you know, really the sport was dominated by a sort of small handful of countries. You know, Britain has got its own um, type of uh, riders coming from a certain type of background. You know, I'm not saying that that excludes anybody else, but there's definitely, um, you know, almost a cause and effect you can draw between that kind of wave from you know 10 12 years ago to now and uh yeah seeing young riders coming through without any fear you know there's no sense that this sport is alien to them and there's no there's also none of that historical legacy of slight mistrust of riders who don't come from the you know the core european heartland you know big european teams will take without question young british riders because uh well firstly they've got data to go on of course um but but secondly it's no longer unusual and so yeah group armor fdj have really you know tapped into young British riders in a way I guess you know Peugeot was probably one of the only foreign teams to do that consistently back in the late 70s and early 80s with uh, Roger Leger as uh, the boss who was a a real Anglophile so yeah it's it's been interesting watching and completely different to you know the landscape when I uh, came into cycling there's a lot of talk about the sort of withering of the domestic scene here, which undoubtedly, um, you know, does have an impact, does have consequences, but there is nevertheless a pathway for talented riders to make it to the very highest level. And yeah, the, the, there's, there are going to be some big wins from some of those lads, I think. Yeah, let's well, let's talk a little bit more about the young riders who did come to prominence in the Etoile de Bessege, and particularly on the last day in the time trial, Josh Tarling, who was second in the time trial at age 18. Incidentally, I make it that... I make that his joint worst ever finish in a time trial. He's won pretty much every time trial he's ever done. Um, I think he finished second in a time trial when he was a junior two or three years ago at age 15 or 16, but otherwise he's won every one. Um, he's 18. Ben Tula, third. He's age 21. Uh, the Frenchman, Kevin uh, Kevin Vauclin, fourth in the TT. He was also climbing pretty strongly all week. And then we mentioned Arnaud Delis as well, taking his two stage wins. Matthias Skelmoser won the Queen stage. He's 22. I mean, I 
I mentioned this on Twitter, Lionel, uh, just what a seismic shift this is for professional cycling. One that if you had started to follow this sport in the last two or three years, you might not necessarily appreciate well, the, the magnitude of it and how different this is from, as you said, you know, the period when we both got into the sport and 23 was still considered extremely mm. young and the victory by a 23-year-old in any kind of race, whether it be early season or in the middle of the season, would be, it would be the subject of a lot of hype any 23 or even a 24 year old I'm doing very well would have got people talking in the same vein you know we were talking earlier about Arnold Delee being a hybrid of I don't know Boonen and Gilbert that that kind of hype did greet anyone at those kind of ages who who used to succeed early in their career I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here but I mean bear in mind late 90s early 2000s what the era you're kind of referring to where there was almost a well there was a secret graduation that many riders had to go through in terms of you know being initiated to the industrial doping that was going on in most if not all teams yeah I you know I'm I'm hesitant to say this this means that you know every corner of the peloton is squeaky squeaky clean but I think that you know it's a it's a much uh, it's a much more honest a much kinder environment to come into I mean you'd have to be incredibly cynical to usher teenagers into um, the sort of environment that riders in the in the 90s and early 2000s or 2000s had to come into and again I said that sort of sense of um, suspicion from um, team managers and uh, you know cycling has been a very traditional sport you know what was good for the previous era is good for the current one some of those attitudes do still exist I mean we, we, we were talking last week about Hilaire van der Schuren. I mean uh, he's 75 years old I mean uh, you know he probably thinks that a rider doesn't come into their own until they're 32 you know um, but uh there's there's much less of that sense that uh, riders have to be a certain age before they can start performing. I think a lot of that is down to um, the way that the World Tour teams are structured, uh, the fact that there are so many events and there are ways to expose riders you know, gradually. You know, Josh Tarling you know, is following in the footsteps of, of Ben Turner and Ben Tuller in the sense of getting a little taste early and then they'll manage his race programme. There's not the, there's not the um, need to kind of use up and burn up riders and use them as kind of roster fodder that again would have been the way that uh, that world tour teams were selected for races uh, because you know they have 30 riders to choose from and yeah there's there's also the data to go on that's the other thing they know that they're good enough um it's not they're not they're looking at the numbers but they're not looking at the age as the most significant number i'm still sort of intrigued by the physiological dimension of this there has been a bit of a dogma in endurance sport about endurance being something that's acquired with age i mean if you look at marathon running for example it's always been the preserve of of runners at distance runners at towards the end of their career that's been a choice thing in a lot of cases that they've tended to i guess it's the prestige of the track um runners tend to want to experience that before then moving on to marathons but it got me thinking about whether there is any any trace any evidence of a similar kind of trend in marathon running is anyone succeeding thriving at similar ages um late teens early 20s lionel we should talk about the winner of the etoile de Bessege and in many ways the man of the early season certainly as far as the french races are concerned i said that you watched him win the gp la marseillaise last week he is a young rider as well 26 years of age nielsen paulus 
and Lionel, and I spoke to him yesterday, in fact, about his outstanding start to this 2023 season. Let's hear it, Nielsen Powell, shall we? It's kind of strange coming home after after winning a few races. I feel like I've I went through this also in when I won San Sebastian a few years ago. You kind of come off of this incredible high at the bike race that you've, you've just won this big event and all this celebrating and then you kind of go home and it's sort of straight back into just daily life you know it's uh <laughs> it's like nothing really changes too much like stuff changes but at the same time nothing really changes and i don't know i think it's it's kind of nice to come home and just feel normal again just back into daily life and back into a nice routine with with my wife and at home and niece and good to step away from it all after you have a, a good result like that keeps you grounded i guess <laughs> everyone talks always about the the importance of momentum for teams particularly but also i guess for individual riders at the start of the year how that can really release pressure and release a burden did you are you experiencing any kind of that relief or are you very much thinking that you've got bigger fish to fry later on in the season uh definitely i think I mean, no matter where you're going, it's always hard to win bike races, um, especially nowadays. There's There aren't really many easy races left. So just being able to win one and, I mean, I was able to win two and it's, it's a pretty amazing feeling. And last year I would have, I was killing myself trying to, trying to win a race and I didn't, I wasn't able to do it until Japan at the very end of the year. So the fact that it's already happened for me in, in, in February is, uh, it's a really nice feeling and I feel like it just frees up the mental space to just focus on the day-to-day preparation and training and focus and I don't know when I went from Marseille to to Bessege it it just felt like I didn't really need to force anything I just Mm. I felt solid and every day I felt solid I never really had a day that I completely like fell apart or anything like that I just mentally and physically felt pretty 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 strong every day so all I had to do was just kind of go through the motions and just race my bike, use all the skills that I've been trying to grow over the past few years. And yeah, I mean, I'm just really happy it all it all just came together and it feels like something that can be repeated as well. I mean, maybe you feel as though winning in Japan last year was a bit of a breakthrough, maybe unlocked something, but also just talk to me a bit about the winter and, and to what extent you you saw and felt this coming because i mean i looked at your instagram and i can see for december i can see donuts i can see <laughs> i can see kayaks i can see a beautiful i don't know whether it's a, yeah. a chinese or korean meal but um so talk to me a bit about yeah. the the sort of work you did over the winter and anything in particular that you were working on or concentrating on i had a few a few people ask me what kind of things i did over the winter to reach a seemingly new level in all honesty i i've had winters where i've trained too hard and come into the season tired and other seasons where i've trained too easy and the races were just well beyond what i was capable of at the time so i feel like having gone through those periods in the past really i don't know really helped me this winter by i don't know i feel like i just i feel like i finally got it right this winter with you know not training too hard not training too easy not overcomplicating things going back to america it's 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 always refreshing because when you go back it's cycling isn't a very big deal in the states at least it i feel like the cycling fan base is so spread out that Mm. um that you never really feel apart from you know the family support you never feel like a you know somebody special which is nice i think it's good to be grounded in reality like that and you just have to you know 
take each training day as like going out and getting the work done, not overthinking it. Just, you know, if you feel bad, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's still a job and you have to do your job and mm. feel good. Just enjoy those good days. And I really just tried to not overcomplicate things and tried to, you know, not push too hard, not push too easy. Just pulling together all the experiences I had over the last few winters and things I went wrong, that things I did wrong and things I did right and tried to piece them all together and enjoy enjoy time with family and go out and get the work done <laughs> yeah because you um i looked at you, previous seasons um, you'd started later you tended to start a little bit later hadn't you uae but i think you had one experience in the covid season of starting earlier starting in australia and it it seemed to go pretty well then but you know there is a school of thought that certain riders are just very good at certain times of the year and i don't know maybe you feel now that actually going forward early february might be a, quite a fertile period for you yeah the biggest thing is that I tend to gain fitness pretty fast, which is, it's a good and bad thing. Like it's a blessing and a curse because gaining fitness fast works really well if you don't, if you don't overdo it <laughs> mm. because gaining fitness really fast tended to put me in a, in a, in a situation where, you know, I'm feeling good. It's early. So like, why not just push a little more and see how, how far we can take this. The fact that I gained fitness early just put me into a a difficult situation where like I thought I would just continue to get better and better forever but that's just not mm. realistic this winter I just tried to hold hold myself back a little bit more just really pay attention to not overdoing things and then being able to start the season a little bit earlier just because I tend to gain fitness pretty fast starting earlier is wasn't really a wasn't, wasn't really an issue and it was just yeah kind of something we tried out a bit newer mm. uh this year and um, yeah, it seemed to work out really well. So still have to still have to keep things under control with um, you know taking proper rest. It's always the risk that yeah, at some point the fitness might run out. But for now, I'm feeling really solid and um, just have to pay attention and take rest when it's needed. Just enjoy the fitness I've got. <laughs> I mean, the win at the weekend it kind of underlined, I suppose, and as well, La Marseille has underlined that you're a guy with a lot of different abilities. So much so that it's. You're a difficult rider to pigeonhole, and there's a, there might be a bit of a danger in that, in the sense that, for example, I believe you're going to try the Cobble Classics for the first time this year. Yeah, I'm just sort of curious. Are you are you still? Is it still a bit of a voyage of discovery for you every season, um, in terms of just zooming in on what you're best at, or is that something? Some riders are, are determined not to become pigeonholed and they sort of mm. take great joy in the fact that they are very versatile and they're good at different things stage races one day races cobbles ardennes and so on i feel like i've found myself and the writer i think i am i don't think it's very easy to pin down exactly what that is but i mean what are you bad at what are you bad at Niels? maybe it's easiest to <laughs> work by elimination what what aspect of bike racing do you really think you're not good at and you really don't like uh i don't man i don't I don't think there's anything about bike racing that I that I particularly don't like. I mean, mm. honestly, I just I found enjoyment out of just about every race I've gone to. Mm. I mean, as long as I'm fit. If I'm just fit, then any I can I feel like I can perform in almost any race on any terrain, like whether it's just a flat windy stage or a mountain stage or I don't know, fingers crossed for the cobbles this year. That's kind of a new voyage for me, but mm. I'm really excited to, to try it out. Are you going there more in hope or is there a, a, a degree of expectation that's maybe also come from, I don't know, people in your team like Andreas Clear. I mean, they know they mm. know everything about the classics and is uh, have 
people with great knowledge of the classics told you no you're going to be good there or is it completely a complete as i say voyage into the unknown for you it's a it's a voyage <laughs> yeah i mean the thing is i i had a good ride in the cobbles in the tour de france last year which kind of was got was getting me thinking about trying out a cobble classic and i mean obviously i raced that race a lot differently than i would a typical cobble classic one because it was much shorter than a cobble classic but also because i was in the breakaway mm-hmm. with only four riders that being said i still really had a lot of fun on that day and just based on you know watching the watching flanders in the last few years it's always just been such a fun race to watch and mm-hmm. racing and in leuven a few years ago at world championships just really opened my eyes to the fan base that's in belgium and i just think it would be an awesome experience so i mean i don't know if i'll be who knows if I'm going to be competitive, and I hope I will be competitive. But at the end of the day, I want to—I want the challenge, and yeah, I just love racing my bike, no matter what the terrain is. So I'd like to have that experience. I was just curious. Um, a couple of years ago, at the Tour de France, obviously, well, you got a lot of attention, not least because you were riding really well and you were in a lot of um, breakaways in that tour. But and um, people became aware of your um, native North American heritage, and people found out mm-hmm. that you know your paternal grandfather is part of the Oneida. Uh, yeah, or was. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, um, I was just wondering. You know, you gave a couple of interviews in that tour where you said you know you'd contacted community leaders or they'd contacted you rather and this was something that you and particularly your sister as well wanted to carry forward um i was just doing a bit of reading that you know the the issue the kind of issues you talked about in the interviews there the how difficult life was particularly for the anada people they're very much ongoing i mean right up until a couple of weeks ago the stories about lack of drinking water and so on and so forth i was just wondering is that something that's very much or even more in your thoughts after a couple of weeks like the ones that you've just had yeah definitely it's definitely something that's you know part of my identity and uh where i ground myself from cycling is giving me a really great chance to you know grow my image and my following and and the voice that i could potentially have to down the road be able to better serve the native american communities and yeah i mean everything that i can that i can do to sort of elevate that community especially down the road when i have hopefully more more of a following more of an image Mm. um more of a voice that's that's going to be pretty important to me to use that to their benefit so Hopefully I can continue this hot streak and uh, <laughs> continue to climb the ranks a bit and put all of that to good use. Well, Lionel, we talked a f- couple of minutes ago about Teo Gegenhart and the obviously good winter that he had, good preparation in terms of it being settled, it being stable. And you heard Nielsen Paulus there talk about how he seemed to have found a sweet spot, of not doing too much, not doing too little in the off-season this year and he has started like a rocket indeed he has and uh, interesting there hearing him talk about the cobble classics possibly being on uh, the race program when i spoke to his teammate simon carr he seemed to be under the impression that sort of uh, the classics a little bit later maybe amstel gold and uh, liege baston liege would be on the menu and maybe they will as well but uh, you know nielsen paulus <laughs> I think back to last year's Tour de France and that day on the cobbles where um, EF education really, well, they played a blinder, didn't they? They got Paulis, who you you might have assumed would be a kind of a, you know, slightly soft touch on the cobbles. They got him away with the kind of the gnarly classics man, Magnus Court, uh, you know, to sort of, I don't know, babysit him across the cobbles and actually looked very, very comfortable and came within 13 seconds of getting the yellow jersey that day. Now, I know there is no real... 
relation between that stage on the cobbles and a full well, tour yeah, of Flanders or, or Paris Roubaix, but still, cobbles are cobbles. Yeah, Daniel. I was looking. F- I was looking forward to seeing the treatment of this stage in the forthcoming Netflix Tour de France documentary. I heard there was some quite eye-catching or eye-watering scenes. However, I've also learned from a bloke in a pub that those particular scenes may not have made the final cut, which I'm slightly disappointed about, I must say. Wow, I remember that really, really well because it all flared up because Robbie McEwen kind of... uh, dug out Alberto Betiol for riding That's, hard across yeah, the cobbles yeah. and narrowing the gap and denying Paulus a chance to get the yellow jersey. And then once this controversy, you know, was flickering, uh, EF, Jonathan Waters in particular, seemed to kind of fan the flames and seemed to want to kind of pour petrol on the on the controversy, perhaps thinking that it was their way to get some, you know, big airtime in the Netflix documentary. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being slightly... <laughs> Most, most unlike <laughs> Slightly frivolous air. But no, he was, uh, you know, those those few days, you know, riding with that kind of, the yellow jersey really within touching distance. Remember, he almost took it the next day on the long stage to Long Wee when uh, Van Aert did that crazy attack. And then Pogacar, uh, well, it kind of seemed to rile up Pogacar on the, the final climb. And he um, kept Paulus out of yellow by just four seconds. And then Paulus slipped away a little bit on the stage to La Planche de Belfi, but uh, you know, real kind of you know standout few days for him there. And he's a rider who now has demonstrated that he can do a lot of different things. The San Sebastian ride, I still think, was um, you know was outstanding when he won that race, the way he won it. And uh, well, as we talked a little bit last week, he's set his stall out early, a couple of decent wins there. I mean, the Etoile de Bessage and the Grand Prix La Marseillaise are, are not you know huge races. But as they say, you can only uh, you can only beat what's in front of you, and uh, you know he's put it all together there. Should just mention because I don't think you mentioned it in the um, roundup. The stage that were cancelled with the with the huge pile up around twenty two oh, kilometres yes. from the finish, and some pretty dramatic pictures. I think it was Valentin Ferron hanging over the wall, and 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 a long and short of it was that the stage was cancelled simply because there were no longer enough vehicles, ambulances able to uh, provide backup to the the remaining peloton i mean it was a you know quite a shocking crash that one wasn't it the stage was was completely cancelled so quite a light week's racing all told wasn't it short stages punchy stages and just going back to your um, comment about uh, younger riders and endurance um there's a world of difference between this and you know a 260 kilometer classic um, but we'll see how Paulus gets on he's certainly going to be a man to watch this spring yeah and I think Lionel as well he's he's in the right team in the sense that EF education they they tend to go into races with lots of different options with lots of freedom for a lot of riders in the team it's not the kind of team that will be systematically that will systematically rally around one pre-designated leader and I think him exploring the full sort of extremities of his abilities is a, is a good idea because, you know, I don't know whether it's because of the connection with San Sebastian, the San Sebastian Classic, but when I think of his different abilities, I was maybe they brought to mind or bring to mind someone like Tony Gallopin is a rider who won San Sebastian, always did really well in San Sebastian, but became a little bit stymied later in his career or has become because maybe he tried to repeat that sort of kind of opportunistic win opportunistic win like Paulus's in San Sebastian when he won there and like 
Palace's win in the GP La Marseillaise a few a couple of weeks ago. But the 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 higher Palace's stock rises, the more difficult it's going to be to pull off that kind of victory, isn't it? Um, those sort of long-range solo moves. So, you know, I think it's probably wise to explore what else he can achieve, and I'm sure he'll achieve an awful lot this year. Lionel, I think that just about concludes the entertainment for the week. Um, there'll be more racing, lots of racing going on at the weekend. Tour of Oman. Not sure who we're going to have back next week. This podcast will be referred to the Premier League Referees Committee to, and they'll deliberate on whether you get welcome back next week um, or whether VAR judges that, that you should get a second yellow for piss-taking this week's pod and um, incur a suspension. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, it's been almost 90 minutes, hasn't it, Daniel? So, I mean, the football analogies just keep on going. (laughs) We will see you all next week. Thank you for your company. Thank you, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.